Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. This is episode 114, recorded on December 4th, and I'm your host, Chris Sands. This week, we're joined for the second time uh, by Hank Abramson, who is a attorney specializing in actually a long list of things, right. but mainly we want to talk about intellectual pr- property. Correct. I'm a business and intellectual property attorney, um, work with a lot of clients in the brewery industry, distilleries, and wineries as well, so... And we were saying briefly, a huge congratulations. You recently broke off on your own and started your your own firm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was, uh, for a number of years, I was with Miles and Stockbridge here in uh, Frederick and decided to go out on my own at the uh, beginning of the year. So Henry Martin Law is the firm name, and um, it's been a great year. Very excited. So and I know there's um, there's definitely quite a few local breweries. I know that you that use you and are always seem very happy. So any brewery okay. owners looking for <laughs> representation for those things? Sure. I'm sure. I'm always I, happy to help. So the the reason I, I wanted to talk to you again is that it seems like recently the, the whole debate over breweries using, um, when I guess from a legal standpoint, there's not really a debate about it. It's more, the debate more stands from craft beer fans also seem to be very divided on some people hate that breweries use um, sometimes plays on intellectual property, right. sometimes outright ripping it off. Mm-hmm. Um, they think it's unoriginal and uncreative, but then other people look at it and see it as parody or paying homage to something right, sure. or the nostalgia stamp sure. uh, aspect of a lot of it. It seems to have um, grown is a bigger issue lately, more and more, because it so many breweries have started doing that. Um, and then even recently there were some high profile ones where the Vale in Virginia had to cancel a beer release and a whole bunch of merchandise they had because of um, they were using basically a picture of Bart Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> I guess in uh, Fox doesn't want them to do that. <laughs> I can understand that. So I thought it'd be great to have someone who actually knows what they're talking about to discuss sure. this with instead of people on the internet who just have feelings and um, their internet law degrees. Sure, yeah. So I guess from a very started point, most of the time would would they even be in like those, uh, when there's those infringement claims, would they even be enforceable? Or the prote- protection given under parody or fair use, would they apply to a lot of these times when breweries are sent a cease and desist? So it's a very complex analysis. It's a complicated analysis. But um, I guess to back it up a little bit, we can talk about you know what the difference is, what you need to have to have an enforceable trademark and trademark rights, and then kind of build from there for the conversation. Um, <clears throat> so... You know, someone can have the name Hank's Tires, for example, and have um, Hank's Beer. That's okay. There's many classes of goods and services out there. And even if you have a similar mark, but you're in different classes, you can be okay. Because yeah, when you file for a trademark, it only applies to certain segments of certain market segments. Right. right, right, exactly. Now, where you get uh, a little bit gray and a little bit tricky is that that also applies to, it's not identical marks, it's confusingly similar marks. Um, and also with respect to the classes the, of goods and services, it can be related classes as well. So for example, if you had a brewery consultant using a particular name and someone who wanted to use that same name for beer itself, you may still run into a problem because they're related classes okay. of goods and services. So that would be the, the first um, thing to address. So if someone came out with an Abramson ale, it could potentially be a... Yeah, it, it could It could be, yep. Um, and so, um, so you start there with the analysis. And then you talk about, okay, well, what's confusingly similar? Well, we know it doesn't have to be identical. It has to be, 
you know, um, kind of look and feel the same. And one of the reasons I love trademark is it's about consumer behavior. It's about how consumers think and feel. I was a, a marketing uh, marketing degree is what I got in college. So that's that's really what I'm interested in. So it applies to trademark as well. So you say to yourself, okay, what are consumers going to think when they look at these respective marks? Are they going to think that the producer of this good over here is the same producer of that good over here? That's kind of the bulk of the analysis. And there's a variety of factors that go into that. So you look at um, the the look of the trademark, the appearance of the trademark the sound of the trademark. Um, are these trademarks in the same goods or services? Do, are they used in the same channels of trade? Um, in other words, are the same consumers going to go to the store and see both products in that store or in the same aisles um, and be more easily confused? Um, so th the, the connotation of the marks is important as well. So there's a variety of factors that go into this analysis as to whether um, one mark is confusingly similar to the other mark. Um, so, th so that's the starting point. So if you have a label on um, a beer can, uh, you say, okay, well, does it look like that other mark? Does it sound like that other mark when you pronounce it? Um, you know, when consumers see what's on that can, are they going to think it's maybe the producer over here? And so that's the bulk of the analysis. Part of that analysis, it's actually not a defense to an infringement claim, it's part of the confusingly similar um, analysis is the uh, issue of parody. So, and that's what you see a lot of times pop up in these, these uh, yeah. trademark cases for breweries. And that's actually a lot of how and why I got into working with breweries because I was a, a and still am, business and IP attorney. And I started seeing story after story of these breweries getting in trouble because they're using confusingly similar names. And I thought, Hmm, that's one area that I could really help. That's something I know about. So as a side uh, kind of note, that's kind of what drew me into this field. Um, so parity can be a tricky issue. You have to have a variety of factors there to even kind of argue parity. And then depending, you know, depending on the factors will depend on how the court sees it. So parity is not as simple necessarily as it sounds. Um, just because a mark looks like another mark. Like um, I saw uh, recently in a, a parody case, there was a mark that kind of looked like the Snickers label, but said something different, just said the brand name. Um, that one? That's exactly <laughs> it. Yes. It was uh, Backwoods Brewing Company. Okay. Is, is who... <laughs> so, so, so just because the, it looks like a Snickers label doesn't make it parody. You have to have a couple more steps. One, the mark that you're kind of parodying or, or replic trying to replicate has to be a well-known mark. People need to see that mark and know, oh, that's the Snickers mark they're trying to play on. The, the second thing is, um, is that there has to be some sort of commentary, a satirical commentary, typically, but some kind of point. It can't just be a ripoff of the Snickers mark. Yeah. That doesn't get you into parody. So this one, then the can above where it says backwoods, which would look exactly like the Snickers label, it says you're not you when you're thirsty, which is then a play on there. Yeah. You're not you when you're so, hungry. So you're starting to get closer, right. So there has to be some kind of comment to it. It can't just be a ripoff of the can. And people have to see, when they look at the logo, they have to be able to know, oh, that's they're, they're commenting on the Snickers label or, or whatever label. And it then is. below it, it says an oatmeal stout with 150 pounds of candy bars. So I don't know where that gets you. I don't know. You know, that could go either way. But, but that's kind of the analysis or some of the analysis that the courts go through. And then they also apply the, the typical factors. Okay, so we get it. There's kind of a play on words here. They, they're using a, a well-known mark to play off of now. Are consumers going to be the same set of consumers? Are they going to be, you, you know, using the same trade channels like we discussed before? Um, how likely is it that one set of consumers will think that Snickers actually, I mean, they make food products, maybe they are getting into beer. And so maybe consumers will be confused by that. And so those are the factors that go into it. And um, in order to, for the parody um, defense or argument to be successful, there really has to be a very distinctive 
play on it. It has to smack you in the face almost as anyone would see that and know, oh, that's a play on words. That's not really whoever makes Snickers, you know, making the beer yeah. product. We're good. And so you avoid the, you avoid the consu- uh, confusing similarity uh, issue. Do you think that one reaches that mark or you th- does this one fall into the gray area? I, I think most of them fall into a gray area because – um, almost, it seems usually, like almost the whole, the well, whole yeah. sub- subject is a very gray area, except usually, for the worst cases. Yeah, intellectual property in and of itself is oftentimes in a gray area. And and oftentimes, especially when you're talking about issues involving First Amendment and like parody, um, the federal courts are all over the place amongst themselves. So you can't really... The Fourth Circuit did actually have a parody case in front of it, and they did find, I, I can't think of the name off the top of my head right now, but they did find that it, it was parody, and that's okay. The other issue you're going to get into is there's a difference between whether you're trying to register the name with the USPTO versus you've been sued for infringement. If you're trying to register the name with the USPTO, they're almost always going to find um that it's a confusing similarity and not pass the mark on to registration mm-hmm. because they don't really look at that that parody play. They don't take First Amendment issues into consideration. They just look at the Is black and you, white that's yeah. on the paper. Whereas if you're just getting sued for infringement and in the courts, the courts will look more broadly at things like First Amendment issues and outside context and things like that. And it may, may be better um, if you're going to parody a, a mark to, in some cases, not actually register that mark. Use it. Uh, use your common law protection, and c- if you think you might get sued for infringement over it, um, a- and kind of think about the the parody argument. But that said, no matter what the courts would ultimately decide, you better believe that if you're ripping off a well-known mark of a big company, they're going to be coming after you f- with a cease and desist. And it's not cheap to argue back against a big company. And so it may still not behoove you to try to replicate yeah. that mark or, or parody that mark. And that, that was when um, one of my questions was going to be, is that like, would most of these breweries who do receive cease and desist and then just stop, is it possible that if they had the same amount of money that the large corporation who has almost unlimited funds had, would they win or on most cases, do they lose? Um, like it said, it depends what the judge has for breakfast that morning. You don't, you don't really know which way yeah. it's going to go. Um, and, and to, you know, you don't want to be a betting man and put money down on that one because y- you just don't know which way it's going to come out. And um, so what – a lot of times you see like um, – referencing completely different things like referencing a uh, a movie or a tv show does that make it safer because that obviously is a completely different sector or from a trademark perspective that makes it a bit safer because again it's not like snickers where they're already into kind of food and beverage products um so if you're kind of replicating, um, you know, something from a, a TV or a movie or something far afield, you go back to your your analysis. Um, is it likely that the same consumers are going to be seeing one versus the other and think that the producer over of one goods or uh, set of goods or services over here is also going to be the the origin of the goods or services over here? So that helps with the analysis a little bit. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of other considerations, too, that come into play, not just trademark a lot of times with these cases. You can fall into copyright and okay. copyright arguments um, or just constitutional First Amendment arguments as well. So the analysis can get a lot more complicated when you're looking big picture at these things. From a trademark perspective, though, yes, that does help in the analysis. So now um – the hat I'm wearing, I know they received a cease and desist for this and they stopped making it. Would, would this have been copyright or would it have been for trademark? So it's interesting. Um, and also this almost like th- this hat almost seems like it falls into the like th- that murky gray area where it like, I, I don't I don't know that anyone would look at this hat and think, 
oh yeah, the Baltimore Orioles created that hat. Right. Well, I would think the Baltimore Orioles created that. I mean, it looks exactly like the Baltimore well, Orioles yeah, hat I mean, with the bird with... and everything. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, with respect to whether it can be a trademark or copyright, actually, sometimes it can be both. Um, uh, so, because they most likely have their logo trademark. Well, absolutely, they have their logo trademark. Yeah. So, if you have a design like that one, and you're using it uh, in connection with a sale of goods or services, then that's a trademark. Uh, copyright protects kind of the aesthetic um, or artistic um, portions of a design. So um, there are requirements, though, for copyright. It has to be sufficiently complex to be copyrightable. So certain trademarks that have a sufficiently complex design can be protected both by trademark and by copyright. That one could uh, potentially be protected by both. Um, so you may have both trademark and copyright issues in that one. Okay. So, but then in your opinion, this one definitely does fail <laughs> the test. It, it looks to me like a Baltimore Orioles hat. Okay. Um, and, and the Baltimore Orioles mark is likely considered a famous mark. Yeah. And so it enjoys very strong protection. And a lot of money backing that protection. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Um, actually, Graham sent me, it, Graham recently bought some beer that was called um, Wookie Cream. Wookies and cream. <laughs> so, so that kind of like that's a it's a pun, right? That, so it, that goes in the parody, and it, but it definitely uses what looks like just blatantly ripped off artwork from Star Wars with the spaceship and things. So, like, and and that's an incredibly valuable franchise yeah. uh, with a lot of resources. So uh, again, it goes back to well, maybe on the the legal arguments, maybe you're correct, but at the end of the day, it's probably not worthwhile yeah. pursuing it because you're likely going to get crushed. I, I I can't. I was talking to a brewery owner, and I really would. It makes no sense for me to even bring this up because I can't remember the details, because there was some like extremely large company that net has that they've parodied their stuff multiple times, uh -huh. but they've never said anything to him like they've really? had like people not like that were official from them that reached out and said that they love it or uh -huh. they think it's hilarious uh -huh. but i wish i could remember what large but it, it was in the media realm well and sometimes too you know from a business perspective you kind of have to think to yourself if you're a valuable brand are these guys really doing us harm? Or are they actually doing some good for us? Are they creating yeah. some brand awareness for us and keeping us relevant? Um, you know, S Star Wars for a long time kind of went dormant in between movies. And so maybe for them, it was worthwhile having someone kind of keeping their name out there. Um, so it can cut both ways. Yeah. Um, but the other thing too, is if you have a valuable mark and you see people kind of replicating or parroting it or ripping it off, if you don't do anything about it and you know about it, you can forfeit your rights. So, again, it cuts both ways. On the one hand, you don't want to just let it go and forfeit your rights in the mark. On the other hand, you know, you have to be careful with your business analysis and, and making sure you're, you're protecting what you can protect and, and a, a worthwhile way of protecting it. Actually, I have, I have some more questions down that road. Okay. Um, but first, I want to take a real quick break to um, thank Roast House Pub for their continued support of the Uncapped podcast. And then I actually have a couple follow-up questions for both for everything we just talked about. So sure. let's, let's thank uh, Roast House Pub for their support. A huge thank you to our presenting sponsor, Roast House Pub, which is located at 5700 Urbana Pike in Frederick, Maryland. If you have listened to this podcast before, you have definitely heard me go on and on about the beer dinners that Chef Nico creates. Simply put, they are amazing. But Roast House Pub has much more to offer. Their friendly staff is knowledgeable about beer and will help you choose from among the 20 beers they have on tap. In addition to the awesome beer selection, the food is always amazing. Make sure to follow them on Facebook and check their website at www.roasthousepub.com to keep up to date on their constant stream of events. All right, so the first, I want to follow up on the, the um, having to depend, defend trademark because I think that's something a lot of people... Um, who criticize like, and it's almost always like when it's a large brewery who sends a cease and desist to a small one, um, will criticize that larger brewery for doing that, like in picking on the little guy and stuff. Right. But, but by trademark law, if if you do not defend 
and you just allow that to happen. You is that correct? You just lose it, or would is it an automatic losing, or is then? But is it really like you have to sue and say to invalidate the trademark? So again, it's it's a little bit more gray. Always living <laughs> in the gray is where I live in intellectual property land. So. If, if you know someone is using a similar mark, um, but there's been no evidence of any um, consumer confusion, the, you can you know send a cease and desist, say, these are our rights to the mark. We're gonna continue to monitor this. Um, you have to make us aware if you um, experience any consumer confusion and we'll do the same. The minute that there's consumer confusion, though, you have to crack down on that okay. um, stuff. So, and if you know, it's it's um, depends also on how close the mark really is. I mean, if it's an identical ripoff, it's pretty hard to let it go, um, both from the trademark perspective and from a business perspective. But you know, if you have little breweries, small breweries that aren't distributing on a national scale and one is in Southern California and one is up in Maine and the chances of actual consumer confusion are slim, you know, you're not necessarily going to use your, lose the rights to your mark. So yeah, I wish I could, um, yeah, I don't know. See, this is why I need my laptop. <laughs> not only do I feel naked, I can't find something I want to, um, but like along those lines in the, so tomorrow, no, the next Wednesday, the yes, tomorrow, when the next issue of Uncapped Magazine comes out, um, there's an article you participated in about this very subject. Uh, one of the subjects is Gearhouse Brewing in uh, Pennsylvania. In uh, what town is that? Chambersburg. Chambers, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. They came out with a beer named Trail Angel that was to uh, raise funds. They, they were using proceeds from it to raise funds for trail maintenance. Okay. Because the owner, actually I think all of the owners are really into biking and mountain mm -hmm. biking. Um, and they they didn't check first, but um, Devil's Backbone, an AB and Bev company, uh, has a beer with the exact same name used for the exact same thing. Uh, but it, what was really nice was that the Anheuser-Busch sent them the cease and desist, mm -hmm. but told them to continue selling what they already had, just don't make it again, and right. like talked about how they were both trying to accomplish the same thing. Right, yeah. You know, at the end of the day... And they obviously didn't have a problem with that because they, they, they didn't mean to rip it right. off, and they're sure. like, oops. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, most businesses don't want to litigate an issue it's costly for everyone it's yeah. burdensome adds stress to everyone it's and and oftentimes it's just frankly not worth your while but you do have to crack down and make sure that you're enforcing the rights that you have to the mark and you know hopefully a cease and desist and a nice we get it you didn't really know but now you know yeah. and Please you know so so what you have and then be done with it you know, that's usually from a business perspective and a trademark perspective, that's legitimate and uh, leads to a lot of goodwill. Yeah. And it's, I think, like that way is, it, and I think maybe Anheuser Busch learned their lesson from just sending the typical cold right. lawyer memos. That could be. Because um, then there was one recently, I think, I think it was a Minnesota brewery. Uh, it was some brewery in a town where the team was about to go to the Super Bowl, I think. Okay. And they named the beer Dilly Dilly, maybe. Uh -huh. And the Anheuser-Busch sent like a singing telegram person to that brewery to re written in old English to cease and desist. And had oh, that's them, funny. And had them dressed up uh -huh. and, and read the cease and desist in the tap room. And that's then gave hilarious. them tickets to the Super Bowl. And oh, just, wow. And then asked them to stop using the yeah. Yeah, that's, that's funny. So, so in a, uh, there was a similar case to that, um, not necessarily identical. I think it was more a publicity rights case than it was a trademark case. But um, LeBron James, I don't know if you saw this story, but when he was still playing with Cleveland and they won their championship, a local brewery in Cleveland came out with uh, cans of beer. I believe they used his image on the can, and he had held it up during his post-game 
press conference or whatever, and he was drinking his beer after winning the championship. And so they then kind of acted on that and printed a bunch of cans with his uh, his his likeness on the cans and started selling those. And the, That's when they the LeBron James far. people shut that <laughs> shut that one down pretty quickly. Um, so so what under is it just that his likeness is protected or is sure yeah so in that case um it would most likely be uh, a name and likeness issue okay uh, everyone recognizes lebron james knows what he looks like and so certainly for someone like that who's as famous as he is there's a lot of value in that name and likeness he makes a lot of money off selling his name and likeness to sponsor different things and uh having his picture on um you know sweatshirts and things like that so it's valuable it's something he wants to protect so now me, though, I wouldn't be able to go after anyone if they put my picture on the can of beer. <laughs> well, and... <laughs> I, I don't know about that. I mean, you're pretty famous, too. So <laughs> I, Barely. I, and I think the three people in this room, are, including me, included. It may not be. Know. The case may not be so easy. Yeah. Um, so it's only famous people, really, that you can't rip off their, license, their like, likeness. Right, right, right. All right. So then the other, the other part was the does – Large companies, um, both in the media realm and in food and beverage, and I'll give ex- specific examples, collaborating with breweries, does that also muddy the water for the confusion aspects? So the, the specific examples are Dunkin' Donuts worked with Harpoon, made a beer that looks like a, a Dunkin' Donuts product. I guarantee and, you that in those collaborations, there's a written agreement well, no, where I mean, there's licensing language. and Yeah, I, I mean more from the standpoint of, like, causing um, consumer the, confusion. The, yeah, the, confu- the consumer confusion argument when um, companies use – when breweries use other companies' uh, looks, trade dress. Or, um, right. When there are other – similar companies doing legitimate licensing collaboration's when when they're hopefully what I'm saying makes sense at all what what you're <laughs> saying like basically is a, a permissible <laughs> creation of a consumer yeah. confusion and so it's not the case where they're ripping them off yeah. but nevertheless it could create consumer confusion yeah. in the marketplace so so in that case um I, I can't speak to every instance of that but you know, if you have Dunkin' Donuts or a well-established company on the one side, they're going to take measures, and I would always recommend the parties take measures, to make it clear to everyone, hey, this is a big deal. This is a collaboration. Yeah. We've permitted them use of the mark. Um, and in that sense, also, because it's a collaboration, it almost is connected to the same origin. So, for example, people will look at that beer, and, yeah, the brewery made it, but under um, – you know, the umbrella of Dunkin' Donuts is kind of is a Dunkin' Donuts beer in a way. And so they're really, you know, they're making that publicly known. They're disclosing that. And so, um, you know, it's mitigating that that opportunity for true consumer confusion where a consumer will, you know, pop up and say, huh, I, I wonder who makes that beer. Um, they'll know. So I guess even I, w- I was thinking from the standpoint of, so let's go back to the original one we looked at, the Snickers bar one. Mm-hmm. Does that um, – do the courts look at those types of things? Like the, does um, does legitimate collaborations muddy the water for other – like a separate case? No, because con- you're talking about infringement versus non-infringement. Uh, okay. You know, what they're really talking about is <clears> – <throat> an unauthorized use of the mark or similar mark. Um, so I see what you're saying. Could it could it kind of dilute the argument if there's all this collaboration going on? I was actually there, but, maybe thinking yeah. it makes it str- the argument for the rights holder stronger because right. there are like all these legitimate right. cross-promotional things happening. It, it makes it obvious that there are legal ways to do this and yeah. uh, to make it clear to the consuming public. So you don't have, you know, the fact that you didn't go through one of those legitimate channels is a strike against you. Yeah. Yeah, because even like, um, I, I think if if they, and maybe that's why they were so clear to say it was a collaboration. RAR has a brewery, RAR has a beer release next week, no, this weekend, mm-hmm. where like, if you looked at the label, 
it, you would think that they were just parodying the um, Fallout, the video game Fallout's mm-hmm. labeling, yep. and, and it's called Nuka Nectar, the, uh-huh. and you would, but it, it was an actual collaboration with Bethesda Studios. Sure. But... My it, guess is that will be somewhere on the cans too. It will be on okay the product in collaboration with yep. okay, mm-hmm. yeah. That would and they probably actually have the TM or right the, the C for copyright next right. to everything. Right. Yep. But so like I I kind of like in my mind I feel like that muddies the water and makes or makes it even a darker shade of gray. <laughs> yeah, I mean it it could. Although you know if you don't see if it's if there's not big you know, a PR release about the collaboration. There's nothing on the can. There's nothing on the respective parties' websites, things like that. You kind of know that this is a knockoff. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of a look and feel thing. You know when something is a knockoff as opposed to a very buttoned-up corporate cro- co-branding effort. You know, they're they're two very different yeah. things. So. What's that cliche? I think it was like in the congressional testimony. It's like, how do you know if... It's porn. It's like right. you'll know it if you see it. Exactly. <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. Um, so the – do you think – do most of these end with just the a cease and desist ascent and by the nature of breweries now where it's most likely they just made it once and didn't even plan on making it again, they use that, um, and it just ends with the cease and desist or – do they often go further where, like, a company will try to go for damages, in, or can they even retroactively sure. go for damages? Sure. Well, uh, how do you mean retroactively? Well, I guess um, – You mean post-infringement? Yeah, or so they send the cease and desist. So they've already done it. They, yeah. They've made it. They send the cease and desist. The person stops, but then can they still go after them for – once they stop, um, that's pretty much the end of the story. No one, you know, if you're talking about federal trademark, you're talking about federal courts, you're talking about attorneys to take you to federal court and prepare for that case and do the discovery and everything. It's not an inexpensive okay. uh, experience. So unless you really have to go to court and someone is blatantly telling you they're not stopping, you try to stay out of court when you can. Okay. And so, so generally speaking, in all cases, in all litigation, um, you know, 95% plus of cases settle out of court anyway. Very few actually go through the court case. And so that's generally speaking. Um, in these brewery-related cases, I would guess that it's an even higher percentage because a lot of the times, especially in the world of craft brewery, you're talking about small business, yeah. very uh, kind of tight budgets, uh, tight resources. And so the second they get a whiff that someone's going to fight them on it, especially in the case where, like you say, it might just be a one-off run anyway. That's going to be the end of the story. It's not worth fighting. So another question, and you may not even have an answer at all for this, um, it's just something I've always wondered. So really large corporations, I would assume, do they have their own legal teams or do they still pay like private practices or – so, how, how does that work? Sure. Yeah, Completely large, unrelated to beer, just a curiosity. No. <laughs> in, in large corporations, you generally have your in-house attorneys okay. um, that because you have so much legal compliance to keep up with yeah. that you have your own team in-house. But then on, you know, um, in-house attorneys, a lot of times are generalists. They know a little bit of everything. Um, and so if you get a case where it requires um, sophisticated expertise in a particular niche area, you typically go to outside counsel anyway. You'll go okay. to a, another a big firm outside and have them handle the niche issue. So even a large company that has a legal team in-house, they still incur costs if they if they have to go forward with something yeah. outside of what they normally right. have already spent. Because uh, oftentimes, I, um, you know, a corporation won't keep around a litigator just in the in the case they go into court. Yeah. You know, they'll hire that person. They're more just people who are it. general ge- compliance folks. Yeah. They'll have intellectual property compliance. They'll have labeling compliance folks. If you know if they're large enough, um, they'll have international law folks. And so, you know, depending on how large the company is, you know, they may have an in-house department of fifty attorneys, a hundred attorneys, whatever it is. Um, yeah. So in in your opinion, do you feel like this is a big problem, um, just something that's happening and isn't that big of a deal? Uh, I can't think of a third option. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 
Well, like I say, one of the the things that really drew me to this industry was this specific problem. I mean, it's one of probably the top three issues that affect breweries. One of the coolest things about the craft brew world is all the creative cool names for the beers and the breweries that they come up with. Yeah. So you know somewhere along the line, this infringement issue is going to come up, and it it so often does. And so it, it is an important issue to pay attention to and have an understanding of kind of where the barriers and boundaries are. Um, from a perspective of, you know, what kind of financial risk is, is this to us? Can this take us down? You know, if a large company is coming after you with a federally registered trademark, it can most certainly take your business down very quickly. And so you want to take it very seriously. You don't want to get a cease and desist, throw it in the garbage and keep going on your merry way. You definitely want to address it. Um, that said, you know, like we've discussed, most of the time you won't end up in litigation. That's not saying you, you yeah. can't or they won't push it to that point. But if you do get a cease and desist, take it seriously. You know, um, you can try communicating with the brewery, communicating what your intentions are. And, you know, maybe there's a way to work it out. Work it out. You can do things like consent agreements or coexistence agreements. They're probably not going to go for that, but that's yeah. a, a suggestion. And if they come back to you and, and say, no, absolutely not, this is where we stand, you got to stop, more than likely you're going to stop doing it um, if, if you're the little guy. So now what if you – so say I have a brewery and um, I have a beer, but I haven't trademarked the name, but I've been making something named Abramson Ale mm-hmm. for like, five years. Sure. Do I have any kind of legal rights to that name if someone else then starts using it and I don't want them to? Or because I've never taken the steps to protect it, have I given up the right to exclusive right to that name? So that's a really good question. Um, There are actually three different levels of trademark protection. The, The first is common law protection, which... Uh, you acquire just by virtue of using a mark in connection with the sale of goods or services in the marketplace. So no registration, nothing additional. You're just selling your goods under a particular mark in the marketplace. You have certain rights. You can send a cease and desist based on that. You can sue on that. The difference is is that um, there are no statutorily prescribed damages. You have to show actual damages in court, which is very difficult. It's an expensive process, and you may not get anything out of it. Um, but you certainly have rights. The The other level, the next level up, is state protection, uh, which is a relatively inexpensive protection. It doesn't give you much more other than there's constructive notice charged to folks by virtue of being on that state's trademark registry, um, and it gives you protection usually within the state's borders. Um, so it, it, it's one form of protection, but doesn't get you much further down the road. You still have to show actual damages in court if there's an issue. Then there's the federal protection, which most, most of us are aware of with the R in the circle. Uh, it's usually a much more expensive protection to get, but you have nationwide constructive notice. You have statutory damages. So if you can show infringement, there's already prescribed damages that are significant. Um, and so the protections are much stronger for you, although the, the cost up front is a little bit more. But if you're going to be selling in interstate commerce and um, you know, selling doesn't even have to be coast to coast. If you're going to be selling within a number of states around you, it's probably worthwhile getting that federal trademark. Is it expensive to have something trademarked? It can be. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's there's a bunch of different so, ways to so it's go. So not just a simple fee that you pay. In. No. So and it, it depends on how you do it. Like I say, the common law protection, where you still have trademark rights, doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. Um, the state protection, at least here in Maryland, is uh, I think it's still fifty dollars plus the half an hour it takes you to draft the the application, which they have in a form online. The federal protection is much more costly, and it depends what your process is. So. You could very easily not talk to an attorney and go and fill out the application on the trademark site. And depending, there's three couple different flavors of trademark applications depending on what you need in the application. But usually I do the one that costs $275 and you can file an application for $275 and see where it gets you. The problem with that is there's been no due diligence done. So you may be completely throwing out your $275 because you don't know that there's an obvious 
conflict out there in the marketplace because you haven't done any analysis or due diligence. Um, so the process that I typically go through is I'll do what's called a knockout search to begin with, which is a, um, you know, a basic search, U USPTO database, some of the search engines, some other areas online that are pretty easily accessible, usually takes an hour or less, somewhere around there, and relatively inexpensive. And that will let you know if there's an absolute conflict out there and you shouldn't go any further before you've started your branding campaign and picked your yeah. color schemes and the whole thing. You haven't put a ton of money into it. You know, it's a relatively inexpensive way to go. And anyone who's starting out in business before they pick their business name, I would recommend at least doing a simple trademark clearance search like that. Um, is that so? Is that a publicly accessible free database you can search through, or is that you can go different places online? USPTO database is accessible and search engines and things. Um, uh, the the caution is though that you don't you know, most people don't have the trademark experience or knowledge to be able to to look then look at the mark and be able to properly analyze analyze whether it's actual conflict or not. Okay, so that would be the first step. Uh, if we're clear on that step, I do a professional search. That's actually run by a third-party search company, and they return to me kind of a book of results. I go through that book of results and write an opinion letter for a client. The opinion letter is really important because if you do end up getting sued for infringement down the road, there's something called willful infringement where if you've kind of acted recklessly or carelessly or intentionally to rip someone off, they can get you for willful infringement, and the damages are much greater. Okay. But if you've done the, you know, the searches, you've done your due diligence, you have your opinion letter and you can say, look, my attorney, we searched this. Um, we thought it was good to go. You know, you mitigate your chance of that willful infringement claim. So there's a couple different reasons you want to do that. So is that the difference between like a slap on the wrist and a punch to the face? <laughs> yeah, <kinda? laughs> that's that's exactly right. Um, something that either slap on the wrist or definitely will shut you, your business down for okay. good. Um, and so, again, that's a second barrier to see, you know, if there's an actual conflict, maybe we stop the cost at this point and and rebrand or pick a different mark. But if you're pretty much good to go, then you go ahead and, and pursue the last uh, step, which is the actual application, which oftentimes is actually the least expensive part of the whole process if you're going to get an attorney involved. Um, and hopefully by doing those two steps of due diligence up front before the application process, you've mitigated your uh, the chances that you're going to get an opposition from a, a company claiming a conflict, um, or uh, you're going to mitigate your chance of getting what's called an office action, which is returned to you by the examiner at the trademark office. And basically they say, we found X, Y, and Z mark that we think is confusingly similar to your mark. Tell us why it's not. And more than likely, you're going to have an attorney write essentially a legal brief to respond, and that can get pretty expensive. So that's another reason to do that upfront due diligence to mitigate the opportunity for extra cost uh, once you've applied for the mark. So to answer your question, it's not so simple. Yeah. There are very inexpensive ways to go about registering a trademark, and there are more expensive ways, um, which are oftentimes much more buttoned up ways to go yeah. about registering a trademark. So it just depends kind of your priorities, the budget, how important is the mark to you, how valuable is the mark to you, how, bu how buttoned up do you want to be, so... So if you're like a national brand that you plan on using for a long time, your best bet is to go the lawyer, make sure all the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. And yeah, but I, I also represent plenty of small businesses that are doing interstate business that it's worthwhile doing the federal trademark protection um, for the same exact reasons. Yeah. You know, you really want to invest in this brand. This is going to be something you grow over the next number of years. You're doing interstate business. Um, and you don't want anyone kind of taking what you've earned to build. So Yeah, you don't want to spend five years building something, then mm -hmm. have to f find out that you need to rebrand. Cause exactly. That, that makes sense. Exactly. Um, I think I've covered every... Every question I had, do you have, have I, have I not asked any important questions that I should have that if I left out anything that you, you can think of? Um, obviously the I, you know, I think that the main point is, and the way that a company can, um, you know, rest much easier at night. And, and my primary recommendation would be, like I said before, when you get into a business or you're thinking about picking an entity name, you're thinking about picking a brand name for a beer, at least have someone who's knowledgeable in the field 
do a you know a knockout search or a preliminary trademark clearance search just to make sure there's nothing crazy yeah. in your face out there that will help you sleep easier at night now if your budget is larger and this is something that you really want to build and you're serious about and interstate commerce and the whole deal i would probably recommend going that next step but at the very least you know do that that trademark clearance search at the beginning because the worst thing that happens and i've seen this a number of times is that a company will fall in love with what their designer designed for them. They'll pick their color scheme. They'll come up with logos. They'll pay the designer a bunch of money. They'll start outfitting, you know, merchandise and building, you know, out their office space and all these colors and everything. And they get a few years into it and they get that cease and desist letter and have to start all over again. That's not the place where you want to be. So, oh, Graham, who was it that we had in that had, they had picked a name and they already started branding Adroit Theory, I think that's who it was. Where in at they they had something that was another AT, uh-huh. and they already had a bunch of stuff, so they, they landed on Adroit Theory because it still fell in line with right. a lot of the work they had already done. Right. But something, yeah, you, you have something to happened over. with the previous name that they were going to go with. Yeah, and the other point I would say too is, and something I see a lot with my clients is, you know, I'll get a phone call or an email. Hank, I need you to act on this. I need you to send out a cease and desist letter. I was surfing the internet and I found this mark that's exactly the same as ours. And um, this is clearly our mark and you need to start drafting that letter. The first thing I do is I put on the brakes and I say, (laughs) because in, in trademark world, what matters is priority. Who has priority rights? Who came to the marketplace first? Whoever came to the marketplace first that's who has the rights, not who registered first or who used it in a big, you know, inter- national way or anything. It's yeah. who came first, who established those rights. And a lot of times when I pump those brakes and we actually look into it, it's my client who was the second comer. And we were about to send a letter to this other <laughs> company, putting, yeah, yeah, putting us on the radar that we're out there too. <laughs> and so um, for, for folks who are looking at this stuff, you know, you find something on the internet, I would caution you to to pump the brakes for a second and call up a, a trademark attorney or someone knowledgeable in the field to have them look at it before you start sending out letters. So what is your advice then to, for the people who want to use parody or nostalgia type names? Do you, is that a dangerous area to tread into or? It's extremely dangerous, especially if you're dealing with a big company on the other end, which it's most likely going to yeah. be for the parody to work, right? So, um, you know, the most legitimate buttoned up way to do it is to contact the other company and try to work out a co-branding situation or a consent situation and do it buttoned up and, 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 every, and forthright. Everyone knows what's going on. Um, if you're not going to do that and, and you're saying to yourself, hmm, what might um, be successful with respect to a parody argument? You know, the more well-known the mark on the other side, the more commentary you can put into it, the more obvious that you can make it that it's a parody and not a ripoff. Um, and the fact that you're dealing with kind of different consumers, different trade channels, um, different kind of market, those are things that are going to help the analysis if you have to argue it. But again, you don't really want to be in that place. So I would urge you to, yeah. to get in touch with the company and see if you can work out a legitimate arrangement so you can use that mark. I thought who was Nintendo. Nintendo doesn't go after people. Oh, which really? is, yeah, which is really surprising because they're they've been notoriously known for even going after people who post gameplay videos on YouTube as it's infringing. Interesting, interesting they, line to, to draw. But there are a lot of breweries that um, use Nintendo um, trademarks. A few come to mind. And, yeah, I can't I can't and, see them, but and and I I've talked to the owners of a couple of them and I'm like, "Hey, did you ever get anything from them because some of them have used it multiple times?" Yeah. And they said, "No, they've never heard anything at all from Nintendo." So either yeah. they're not searching constantly to get like they may to not know be... what happens or they just have decided that there's no confusion there and Right. They may not be that concerned cuz you're dealing with beer versus video games. Yeah. Um but You know, um, there may be an instance where, who knows, they come up with a video game based around uh, breweries or something like that, and then I would bet that they would get more serious about it. But, yeah, like I say, you know, we talked about there's also business – 
thinking and strategy and analysis that goes into us. It's not just let's crush the world and make sure no one ever uses our mark. Yeah. There is further analysis on the business and as to whether maybe this is actually good for us. How far do we want to let the it PR go? The PR impact. The PR impact. Are they, you know, is it clear that, you know, it's a ripoff and a parody or um, so there's other factors that go into it. So a quick rundown of your advice. Always check. <laughs> Consult uh, someone who knows what they're talking about, uh, not just the Internet. Right. And uh, parody is a murky water to tread into. Very. Extremely. <laughs> extremely murky. Uh, I thought there was another one that I forgot the list, but maybe. I try to work out a legitimate relationship. That, that's what it was. Yeah. I, well, actually, so I don't want to rip you off with not offering you the whiskey. <laughs> we end every. Um, do you have any bad reviews? Because I typically ask breweries <laughs> if they've received any bad reviews. Have you have you received of, of my services? Have you, you lost services? Or <laughs> not yet. Thankfully, not yet. Uh, I'm still here. So, uh, there's there's some breweries have received some hilarious ones. Oh, really? In fact. Um, it actually may be when this comes out. I can say it's either next week or the following week. I'll be releasing the audio from um, an event I uh, emceed in Baltimore called the One Star Review, an e- ode to the One Star Review, an evening of strong opinions, uh-huh. <laughs> um, where a bunch of breweries read the the most hilarious One Star reviews that they've That's received great. across. That's so great. this is a hopped whiskey. Much. That right. I made with uh, McClintock Distillery. Very cool. So thank you for coming in. Thank you for talking to our writer for the article. Sure. That'll come out tomorrow. Great. Um, so people can, where can people find you to, if they need your services or want to come have you autograph uh, the article? <laughs> HenryMartinLaw.com. Uh, you can find all my information right there. Great. Yep. Uh, thank you. All Cheers. All right. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook, and if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh my god, that's good.